Today on Vitality Radio, I want to talk about my dreams. Well, not exactly about my dreams, but more about why I am dreaming so much lately. I also will be talking about two major bombshells that were dropped in the last week or so regarding science and pharmaceuticals. These matter in a big way. You may have heard about the Alzheimer's research fraud. If you haven't, stay with me. I'll tell you all about it. Or maybe you heard the one about the SSRI scandal and how the serotonin theory for depression may be completely debunked. If not, we'll dive into that one as well. I'll also offer up some really important, legit options on how to help depression and prevent Alzheimer's today on Vitality Radio. But first, my dreams. Okay, so this is a funny topic because I did not expect to be talking about this this week. It wasn't on my uh, wasn't on my agenda. Uh, in fact, this week's episode kind of just all came to me. I didn't have to look very hard. But when it comes to my dreams, this is what's been going on. So I traveled. I was gone all of last week with my kids in uh, California, and I. You know, for the most part, I'm a pretty good sleeper, not as much in my older years as I'm nearly 50 as I once was, unfortunately. But generally speaking, I've been a pretty good sleeper and a pretty good dreamer. I dream regularly, I would say, but, you know, most nights I wake up the next morning and I don't remember any of the dreams that I had if I had any dreams. And then sometimes, you know, once or twice a week, I'll wake up from a dream or something like that. And oftentimes, if I don't share the, you know, what happened in the dream, it's gone in a few minutes. But I'm telling you, something changed while I was in California. I took a bottle of Vital Sleep. Now, I developed Vital Sleep, uh, I'm going to say about six years ago, maybe seven years ago. It was one of my formulas that I was really excited about and, and pretty proud of based on the results that we heard from many of the people that listen to this show and shop at Vitality Nutrition. And what was interesting about it is it was it was a big hit pretty much across the board. But back then, I didn't hardly ever use a sleep aid. And so I never really used it much myself. Uh, maybe never, honestly. I, I don't know, remember if I ever took it. But I this next go around, we had an issue all through COVID. I couldn't get vital sleep. There were a couple of ingredients that I couldn't get. And uh, part of that had to do with switching from one manufacturer to another. There's a bunch of details you don't need to know about, but it was a frustrating thing because one of our best-selling products and, frankly, one that a lot of our best customers relied on just simply went away. And that was pretty sad because, well, you know, from a business perspective, I couldn't provide a product that I could sell and and make income on. And from a personal perspective, I hated that uh, customers that had grown to really love that formula could no longer get it. And there was a lot of frustration. Well, I finally was able to put the whole thing back together again. And I, I did a reformulation, but I didn't really change the formula other than I really was able to pump up the ingredient potency. I was able to get my favorite form of ashwagandha in there, which was no small feat because uh, a small company like me, it's a big minimum order to, in order to order the sensorial ashwagandha, but I was able to make that work. And sensorial ashwagandha is now making its way into all of my formulas that have ashwagandha. And I believe sensorial is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five times as effective as regular ashwagandha. 
based on the research that's been done and based on the feedback I've received. So this is the first time Vital Sleep had had Sensoril in it. I also was able to increase the potency of the extracts of the other three key herbs in the formula. Now, Vital Sleep has lemon balm, it has uh, 5-HTP, it has Sensoril, it has a little bit of melatonin, it has L-theanine, which I was able to increase the potency of that by 50%, which I love. You've heard me talk about theanine on this show before, probably. And I was able to increase all the herbs to extracts uh, and concentrate them four times stronger than they once were. Uh, the theanine is 50% higher than it once was. And the ashwagandha, as I said, sensorial is about three to five times as effective as what I was previously using. And what's really exciting about it, even in today's you know age of massive inflation... I didn't have to raise the price very much. It's, it used to sell for $29.99. Now it sells for $34.99. And it is at least, I think, twice as strong, which means in many cases, I think people will actually save money. They'll only have to use one capsule at night instead of two. Well, I decided this time because I was going to be traveling. I don't tend to sleep great in hotel beds. And my overall sleep had been suffering a little bit compared to what I'm used to anyway that, hey, I'd test out my own formula and see how this stuff works. So I grabbed a bottle of Vital Sleep before it even had a label on it, and I took it with me. And I experimented with three different doses. I experimented one capsule, two capsules, and three capsules uh, during the time that I was gone. I only took three once because I found that one was actually pretty effective and two was fantastic. So, and I, I didn't feel like three did more for me. The first thing I want to report that I've promised people with vital sleep in the past, but I wanted to make sure that it was still the case with the higher potency extracts in there, is that I never felt groggy. I felt, you know, awake the next morning as much as I ever do, uh, ready to go as much as I ever am, <laughs> as I'm not a natural morning person. And uh, so, yeah, no grogginess, which was great, but also, holy mackerel, my dreams were incredible. And not just that the dreams were vivid and interesting, and I, and I never had a nightmare or anything. I did have one with a little argument with a crazy person. But, uh, you know, other than that, very pleasant dreams. In fact, the, the, my favorite was a dream where I was able to dream about my mother and my father, uh, who are no longer uh, with us here on this earth. And so that was beautiful. But I had multiple dreams almost every night that I could remember, like, really, really clearly the next morning which was amazing. I can't remember that happening before where I've had a couple of independent dreams that I could remember clearly the next day. And the night I took three, I had three separate dreams that I was able to remember the next day. And these are dreams that have, to some degree, not all of them, have stuck with me. I could still recite details about many of these dreams. And my sleep was peaceful and deep. And I woke up feeling great. And I yes, I'm touting my own formula for sure. But I'll tell you, I absolutely love Vital Sleep. And I never, never really tried it before. Uh, I was going basically on, you know, what other people had told me about it in the past. So I'm excited to announce Vital Sleep, bring it out to the masses, so to speak, here on Vitality Radio. And uh, yeah, if you want to sleep like the dead, you know, in a good way, you really ought to give it a try. We are doing a limited time promotion on it. 
uh, on our website, vitalitynutrition.com, where it's $10 off. So it's $24.99 instead of $34.99. And if you mention Vitality Radio, uh, you can get that same discount in Vitality Nutrition uh, in store at uh, Vitality Nutrition. So I'm really, really excited to announce Vital Sleep, to announce that I'm having amazing, vivid dreams every night that I take it. And, and, and interestingly, I have chosen not to take it a couple of nights just to compare and contrast. And yeah, it's a big difference. It's pretty amazing. So love, love, love Vital Sleep. And I would love for you to try it out. And of course, like anything that we sell at Vitality Nutrition, if you don't love it, no big deal. We will happily refund your money. Okay, so uh, I've got one announcement before I jump into what is going to uh, amount to kind of a double rant here. The announcement is that I've been saying this is coming up. Vitality Radio is turning 45 years old. I'm turning 50 August 7th, and Vitality Nutrition, we celebrate our 45th birthday every August. Or, or sorry, <laughs> we celebrate our birthday every August. Um, although I don't know the exact date that the store was uh, founded, I do know uh, that it was the summertime of 1977. So I've chosen August simply because, well, it's when my birthday is. So it's a good, an easy month to remember. So we kind of celebrate those together. And you don't have to bring me a present. It's okay. But what I would love is the uh, company uh, that you would uh, provide if you come down and see us at Vitality Nutrition, if you're local. Or, of course, jump on the website and give us a call, uh, or give us a call, sorry, if you're not local uh, to the area. You can call us at 801-292-6662. If you jump on the web, you're going to find some really cool things. All of my formulas, all of them are marked down, and that includes the vital sleep, as I just mentioned. Uh, We don't typically run, like, big, deep specials on these because... The way I've chosen to do it is I I try to keep the price at a good, reasonable, affordable level right out of the gate. Uh, And so we don't have as much space to do big, deep discounts. But we are doing that because it's our 45th birthday and we appreciate you supporting us long enough that we have made it this far. So all of that stuff's on sale and there are two promo codes on the website You'll see them first thing when you log in to vitalitynutrition.com. If you punch in those codes, you'll get an additional discount on everything on the, uh, the site. Uh, and uh, you can also get free shipping if you're over $100. There's some other really you know cool stuff going on. So check it out, vitalitynutrition.com. Or like I say, if you're local and you're around on Saturday, uh, July 30th, We would love to have you. Now, the promos on the website do run through the entire weekend. And so, uh, you know, you've got basically until uh, late Saturday night or Sunday night, sorry, uh, on the website. And uh, you can take advantage of those specials. So that's uh, it for the announcements. Let's jump straight into what is going to be kind of a double rant. But also, I'm going to give you some hopeful information because you know, I get a little annoyed, and this week I'm super annoyed, incredibly irritated, frankly, about what I'm about to tell you, but there are always silver linings to these dark clouds. So first, let's talk about the bombshell that was dropped about Alzheimer's disease research. Now, there was an article in Science.com, 
And it is a truly fantastic article. I'll link to it in the show description because I want you to read the whole thing. It's very long. I can't go through the entire thing. I'll run out of time on this show. But it is valuable not just because of the topic at hand, Alzheimer's research, which we are going to go into. Um, you'll, you'll understand the story from what I'm going to share with you for sure. But the depth of the article was very impressive to me, and I think it gives you an insider's view of what is going on when it comes to potential science fraud. And, of course, you know, those of us who lived through COVID over the last couple of years, we saw a lot of very, I'll say, fishy things at the very least going on. And so there's been some questions about scientific uh, validity, the validity of the science that people are spewing, uh, particularly from government and pharma companies and things like that for a long time. Well, this article exposes something that I think is pretty deep and pretty dark. It, the article starts in August 2021, a researcher named Matthew Schrag, a neuroscientist and physician at Vanderbilt University, got a call that would plunge him into a maelstrom of possible scientific misconduct. A colleague wanted to connect him with an attorney investigating an experimental drug for Alzheimer's disease called Simifilam. The drug's developer, Cassava Sciences, claimed it improved cognition partly by repairing a protein that can block sticky brain deposits of the protein amyloid beta, a hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. Now, if you know anybody who has Alzheimer's or you've done much research on Alzheimer's, you've heard of the amyloid beta plaque. And that is the primary theory that most research on Alzheimer's uh, is, is based on, or at least on Alzheimer's medication. So uh, Dr. Schrag uh, applied his technical and medical knowledge to interrogate, interrogate published images about the drug and its underlying science. He identified apparently altered or duplicated images in dozens of journal articles. The attorney uh, reported many of the discoveries in the FDA petition, and Schrag sent all of them to the National Institutes of Health, or the NIH, which had invested tens of millions of dollars into the work. But Schrag's sleuthing drew him into a different episode of possible misconduct, leading to findings that threaten one of the most cited Alzheimer's studies of this century and numerous related experiments. The first author of that influential study, published in Nature uh, 2006, was an ascending neuroscientist. His name was Sylvain Lesney. Now, he's French. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but uh, Sylvain Lesney is what I'm, what I'm going to go with, of the University of Minnesota. He, his work underpins a key element of the dominant yet controversial amyloid hypothesis of Alzheimer's, which holds that AB clumps, known as plaques in the brain tissue, are primarily the cause of the devastating illness, which afflicts tens of millions globally. In what looked like a smoking gun for the theory and a lead to possible therapies, Lesney and his colleagues discovered the AB subtype, or discovered an AB subtype, and seemed to prove it caused dementia in rats. If Schrag's doubts are correct, though, Lesney's findings were strictly an elaborate mirage. A six-month investigation by Science Magazine provided strong support for Schrag's suspicions and raised questions about Lesney's research. A leading independent image analyst and several top Alzheimer's researchers, including George Perry of the University of Texas, San Antonio, and John Forsyth, 
of the University of California, San Francisco, reviewed most of Schrag's findings at the request of Science.com. They concurred with his overall conclusions, which cast doubt on hundreds of images, including more than 70 of Lesney's papers. Some look like shockingly blatant examples of image tampering, says Donna Wilcock, an Alzheimer's expert at the University of Kentucky. The authors appeared to have composed figures by piecing together parts of photos from different experiments, said Elizabeth Bick, a molecular biologist and well-known forensic image consultant. The obtained experimental results might not have been the desired results, and that data might have been changed to better fit a hypothesis. Now, in science, we all know from the earliest years in school that a hypothesis is a you know is an educated guess, and then we do science and research to prove if the guess is right. But we're not looking to prove that it's right or that it's wrong. We're just looking to find out which it is. But In science, when it comes to pharmaceutical research, there's a massive vested interest in proving a certain hypothesis right if you believe you can come up with a drug that you can then sell based on that proof. Early this year, Schrag raised his doubts with NIH and journals including Nature and, uh, or sorry, and journals including the Nature Journal. And they've published expressions of concern about papers by Lesney. Schrag's work done independently of Vanderbilt and its medical center implies millions of federal dollars may have been misspent on the research and much more on related efforts. Some Alzheimer's experts now suspect that Lesney's studies have misdirected Alzheimer's research for 16 years. Think about that. 16 lost years of science that we could have had trying to figure out this devastating illness. The immediate obvious damage is wasted NIH funding and wasted thinking in the field because people are using these results as a starting point for their own experiments, says Stanford University neuroscience Thomas Sudoff, a Nobel laureate and expert on Alzheimer's and related conditions. Now, I want to point out that I've now quoted about six different experts that all concur with the research that's been done by Schrag saying that the research done by Lesney is probably, well, frankly, fraud. Lesney did not respond to requests for comment, however. A UMN spokesperson did say that the university is reviewing complaints about his work. Hundreds of clinical trials of amyloid-targeted therapies have yielded few glimmers of promise. Hundreds of trials based on this research have basically turned out to be not very helpful at all. However, only the underwhelming Autohelm, Autohelm, I think is what it's called, this is the only drug based on this research that's gained the FDA approval, and it's a very underwhelming drug in which most, well, many anyway, critique it and say that it really has no value. Yet AB still dominates research and drug development, this amyloid plaque theory. Now, let's just put this into perspective a little bit too by what that means. It still dominates research. For 16 years, research has been largely based on this theory. In fact, NIH NIH spent half of its Alzheimer's money last year on studies specific to what Lesney's research showed. 
And that amounted to $1.6 billion just last year. So we're talking billions and billions and billions of misspent dollars. Scientists who advanced their other potential Alzheimer's causes, such as immune dysfunction or inflammation, complain that they have been sidelined by the amyloid mafia, Forsyth says. The amyloid hypothesis became the scientific equivalent of the uh, early models of the solar system in which the sun and planets rotated around the Earth. So what is happening here? We have a researcher who doctored images, at least 20 images that we're aware of, that has then led Alzheimer's research for 16 years, researchers for 16 years to spend billions of your money, billions of your dollars, taxpayer dollars, funded by the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and all because what? So this guy could win some prizes because he did win some prizes. So he could get massive funding from the government. He did get massive funding from the government. Maybe he could also make a lot of money off of some sort of kickbacks from drugs if they could get these approved. I don't know if that was the case or not. Regardless, he's earned a lot from doctoring these images. And it's absolutely crazy to think about it. So the article goes on and on. There's so much depth and detail. And like I said, I would highly encourage you to read it. And I'm going to link it in the, in the show description. I would check it out. But to wrap this up, what appears to have happened and has been corroborated sorry, by dozens of other independent researchers is that Lesney did, in fact, doctor the research by literally fancy cutting and pasting of images to prove things that his research could not otherwise prove. So he faked proof. He pulled the soil. The soil. <laughs> Sorry, I just uh, had a complete misprint there. He pulled the wool over other researchers' eyes, and has probably been the root cause of 16 years of potentially not totally bogus research, but almost totally bogus because there is maybe still some evidence aside from Lesney's research that amyloid plaque still plays a role, but it may not have anything to do with it at all. We don't know because so much was based on this. In fact, I can't wait to talk to Dr. Bredesen. I'm going to see if I can get him back on the show, Dr. Dale Bredesen, who I believe is probably the best researcher on Alzheimer's, and see what his take is on this because I would imagine he's flabbergasted and frustrated as well, but I have not had the opportunity to talk to him yet. So billions of your tax dollars wasted, yielding nearly zero positive results. But what's worse than billions of dollars wasted, I mean, seriously, the government wastes our money as if they're the ones printing it, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, what's worse than wasting billions of our tax dollars? I think what's worse is taking advantage of these desperate people who've been diagnosed with this horrifying disease and their families and friends and loved ones who then donate money to Alzheimer's research funding, which is being spent on research based on a completely faulty premise in the first place. And it's not just faulty because somebody made some mistakes. It's faulty because someone specifically committed fraud. And the person above Lesney, her name is Ash. She signed off on all of this stuff. Is she complicit? We don't know. 
It'll be interesting to find out. She says she's investigating too. If she's not complicit, then she's just incompetent, not actually checking the research because so many people that have now looked at the research can say, hey, this is bogus. And so we have massive amounts of money and time wasted and false hope, people signing up for studies on drugs based on this hypothesis, hoping it helps their Alzheimer's and likely signing up for more side effects and no benefit. And what's worse than even that? Well, let's go back to the article to find that out. In his whistleblower report to NIH about Lesney's research, Schrag made his scope and stakes clear. He said this dossier is a fraction of the anomalies easily visible on review of the publicly accessible data. The suspect work not only represents a substantial investment in NIH research support, but has been cited thousands of times and thus has the potential to mislead an entire field of research. The agency's reply, which Schrag shared with the Science magazine, noted that complaints deemed credible will go to the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Research Integrity, the ORI, for review. That agency could then instruct grantee universities to investigate prior to a final ORI review, a process that can take years and remains confidential absent an official misconduct finding. To, the, to Science Magazine, NIH said it takes research misconduct seriously, but otherwise declined to comment. So they're going to take years to figure out if there was fraud that is costing them $1.6 billion of your dollars per year to research that is slowing down, hindering real research on this devastating disease. That's what's happening. Well, of course, because the NIH, you know, the good people who brought us Dr. Fauci, I mean, what, what value does the NIH have if they can't even help us figure out truth from error? They talk all the time about misinformation, but they're spending $1.6 billion based largely on misinformation that is not just a theory that is wrong. It's actually science that's been made fraudulently. And then we're told by Mr. Fauci that he is science, that if we question the NIH, we are questioning science. There's a lot of problems with that. A lot of problems. So, all of these researchers that have looked at this evidence have already been able to tell there is definitely misconduct and some level of fraud. And they've been able to figure that out in the last six months. Why can't the government with its seemingly unlimited resources figure it out in less than years? Well, I can only guess that their hands are tied by the pharma money that they use as the kickbacks come in from the companies trying to make drugs based on this hypothesis until they can come up with another hypothesis to make drugs that might actually help people with Alzheimer's. 
So there's one researcher, his name is Selko, and he says that his bigger worry is that the Lesney episode might further undercut public trust in science during a time of increasing skepticism and attacks. But scientists must show they can find and correct rare cases of apparent misconduct, he says. We need to declare these examples and warn the world. And yes, Selko, you are correct. We need to warn the world. We need to point out this misconduct. We need to stop calling it misconduct and call it what it is, fraud. And people like Lesney should be in prison for the rest of their lives. Once it's proven beyond doubt that he's guilty, it seems to me it's already beyond reasonable doubt. But regardless, Lesney, along with so many other researchers in science over the years, putting forth information that's simply not true to serve a purpose that is sometimes maybe no greater than themselves, but oftentimes primarily based on the holy dollar. So after COVID and now this, why would anyone have any trust in so-called science? This is precisely why I did my episode number 238, if you want to check it out, where I asked the question, who can you trust with your health? And it's a difficult question to answer because Everybody, to some degree, has some sort of bias, some vested interest. I have a vested interest. I have a store that's been in business for 45 years selling vitamins and herbs and supplements. I would like to be in business another 45. And in order to do that, I've got to sell things. And part of the way I do that is by marketing those things on this show. I do have a conflict of interest when I'm talking to you. And that is why I did that episode 238 to at least share with you how I try to steer through the smoke screens. At the end of today's show, I'm going to share with you a gentleman who has been completely blackballed by quote unquote science for rocking the boat too much. We'll talk about that in a minute because it goes very well along with this. But in the meantime, if you're curious about the Alzheimer's question, the best thing I can point you towards is a book called Ending Alzheimer's by Dr. Dale Bredesen. I love that book. I own it. I've read it. I've had Dr. Bredesen on my show twice, and I believe he really knows what he's talking about because he's one who who basically refuses to believe that Alzheimer's isn't curable. But he believes that it's curable by taking care of the human body, not by attacking this potentially non-existent form of amyloid plaque. I did two episodes with him, episode 128 and episode 222, and I'm going to make my best effort to get him on again to talk about this because I'm very curious about it. But if you want to check out those episodes, you'll get some great information to kind of wrap up In a very, very simple way, what he suggests, he talks a lot about eating to reduce inflammation rather than to increase it. And you can look up anti-inflammatory foods. I highly suggest you do that search versus inflammatory foods. The first thing I think that might be the single biggest donor to Alzheimer's, I don't know this. There is evidence, I think, that might back this up. 
but is the sheer massive amount of inflammatory foods that we're feeding ourselves, specifically the seed oils, soybean oil, peanut oil, canola oil. These are relatively new to human nutrition over the last, you know, 60 or so years. Is that about right? Yeah, 60 so 60 or so years. We've been eating these oils and replacing what are really healthy fats, such as butter, with these oils because we were told and sold a line that is also based on bogus science. The Framingham study. Or Farmingham, Framingham, yeah, Framingham study. If you haven't looked at that, look at that. I've talked about it on this show before as well. I don't remember which episodes, but regardless, we need to get rid of those oils, replace them with better oils. We need to drop the sugar level in our diet. And Dr. Bredesen suggests uh, very much supplementing with omega-3 and magnesium, as he believes those are probably the two most critical elements for brain health, and I one. 100% concur with that conclusion. He also did formulate a brain supplement that we've had more raves about at Vitality than anything we've ever sold for the brain called NeuroQ. And uh, NeuroQ is, is a truly amazing supplement. You may want to check that out too uh, as a kind of preventative but also here and now cognitive product. Okay, so that's uh, all the time I have to spend on Alzheimer's and the Alzheimer's fraud. I really do encourage you to read that article on science. Uh, dot com, which, as I said, is linked in the show description below. And now we'll run straight to the second bombshell that dropped. What if serotonin has little or nothing to do with depression at all? And what if all of the most commonly prescribed antidepressant drugs since 1987 are all based on that hypothesis? Well, this is not news to me or regular listeners of Vitality Radio because I've talked about this before. But it was news to most people. 88% of Americans polled believe that depression is a chemical imbalance. So as a chemical imbalance, shouldn't we treat it by raising that chemical in the brain? Well, sure. Maybe if we raise serotonin, then we can fix depression. Except that the majority of people that go on antidepressants aren't aren't no longer depressed, right? Even though their serotonin levels may go up. But, you know, they don't measure for serotonin when they put you on an antidepressant. They just base it on this hypothesis that is now, according to the most recent headlines, also bogus. Now, this one, I'm going to say it's more egregious than the Alzheimer's one. The Alzheimer's one ticked me off. Because it's, it's new, and I did not know any of that stuff until I read through these articles. And as I did that, I recognized that one researcher can, you know, that whole one bad apple thing can screw up a lot of things. But the reason I think the serotonin hypothesis is more egregious is because there are Thousands of people in on it. It's not just one guy or two people or whatever it is with the Alzheimer's thing. This is bigger, and it's been going on for a much longer time. And unlike the Alzheimer's thing, which has just been screwing up research, this has produced drugs 
that have been in millions and millions of people and that have caused significant damage, but also significant profits. An article in SciNews.com lays out what investigators found regarding the serotonin theory, a theory we have been working on since 1987 when the first SSRI drug was approved by FDA. Although it's been questioned more recently, the serotonin theory of depression remains influential with principal English language textbooks still giving it qualified support, leading researchers endorsing it, and much empirical research based on this hypothesis. Many general practitioners also subscribe to this view, and popular websites commonly cite the theory. It is always, it is always difficult to prove a negative, but I think we can safely say that after a vast amount of research conducted over several decades, there is no convincing evidence that depression is caused by serotonin abnormalities, particularly by low levels or reduced activity of serotonin, said the University College of London's professor Joanna Moncrief, the lead researcher on this new paper. The popularity of the chemical imbalance theory of depression has coincided with a huge increase in the use of antidepressants. That's over 13% of Americans over 18 years of age using these drugs. Think about that. 13% of adult Americans. That is a massive number. And that number results in about $13.5 billion in sales annually just in America as of 2020, and is estimated to grow to $22 billion annually by 2027. So it's a hypothesis that's been extremely profitable. Their umbrella review, Professor Moncrief and colleagues aimed to capture all relevant studies that have been published in the most important fields of research on serotonin and depression. The studies included in the review involved tens of thousands of participants. Now, this is important. This is a meta-analysis where they looked at all the research. It wasn't a new study. They looked at all the research that's already been done, that's already basically proven that this theory is bogus. And the research that compared levels of serotonin and its breakdown products in the blood or brain fluids did not find a difference between people diagnosed with depression and healthy control participants. That's one problem. They also looked at studies where serotonin levels were artificially lowered in hundreds of people by depriving their diets of the amino acid required to make serotonin. Those studies have been cited as demonstrating that a serotonin deficiency is linked to depression. But a meta-analysis conducted in 2007 and a sample of recent studies found that lowering serotonin in this, this way did not produce depression in hundreds of healthy volunteers. And we knew that in 2007, but they're still prescribing these drugs to millions of us today. Very large studies involving tens of thousands of patients looked at gene variation, including the gene for the serotonin transporter. They found no difference in these genes between people with depression and the healthy controls. Those studies also looked at the effects of stressful life events and found that these exerted a strong effect on people's risk of becoming depressed. The more stressful life events a person had experienced, the more likely they were to be depressed. Well, what a shock that is, right? The very idea that a chemical imbalance is what depresses people is, in my mind, has always been absurd. We know that we live in a world where depression is an easy thing to feel, right? 
stuff happens in our lives that doesn't feel good. People die. People get sick. People lose jobs. People have relationship issues. They get divorced. They lose contact with loved ones. So many things happen. And depression is a natural part of this life experience on this big planet we call Earth. But it doesn't mean that you need to stay there. And of course, major depressive disorder, MDD, as the DSM calls it, is when you are hanging out in depression for an extended period of time. But these findings that stressful life events might actually be a leading cause of depression, who had to research that? I mean, I guess it's good to prove what seems obvious in the first place, I, I guess. But what's interesting is they can't find evidence that serotonin means anything when it comes to depression. These findings together led the authors to conclude, or, or sorry, here we go. A famous early study found a relationship between stressful events, the type of serotonin transporter gene a person had, and the chance of depression so they tied stress to the chemical imbalance and then said that equals depression, which that could make sense. That, like that actually seems potentially valid at least. But larger, more comprehensive studies suggest that that was a completely false finding. These findings together led the authors to conclude that there is no support, no support, for the hypothesis that depression is caused by lowered serotonin activity or concentrations. There is also no evidence that believing that low mood is caused by a chemical imbalance leads people to have a, or sorry, there's also evidence that believing that low mood is caused by a chemical imbalance leads people to have a pessimistic outlook on the likelihood of recovery and the possibility of managing, managing their moods without medical help. And that makes sense to me entirely. And I see it all the time when I talk to people who've been diagnosed with depression or bipolar or OCD or PTSD. They are led to believe in many cases that they have a chemical imbalance now. And the only way to manage that is with a drug, which simply is not true especially because the root cause was never the chemical imbalance in the first place, according to pretty much all of the research. This is important because most people will meet the criteria for anxiety or depression at some point in their lives because, yeah, life is challenging. The scientists also found evidence from a large meta-analysis that people who used antidepressants had lower levels of serotonin in their blood. They concluded that some evidence was consistent with the possibility that long-term antidepressant use actually reduces serotonin concentrations. Now, that's not surprising because oftentimes when we manipulate hormones, your body makes less of that hormone. But what if the serotonin hypothesis has any validity? Then that means the long-term use of antidepressants would make it worse, not better. If it has no validity, then what does the lower serotonin, what does it do then? Well, we don't know exactly. We do know that serotonin is tied to proper sleep cycles. We do know that. So then we've been working on this hypothesis that serotonin is the chemical imbalance, that low serotonin is the imbalance that creates depression. 
And the reason that some people can get through traumatic experiences in their lives and do okay is because they have the right amount of serotonin. The reason other people can't is because they have too little serotonin. But if that's not true, and we've only been doing that since 1987, generating billions and billions and billions of dollars for pharma companies, and yet while we've been working on this hypothesis since 1987, we know in 2007 they disproved this hypothesis anyway. It's just that now somebody's taken another stab at it. In 2012, Newsweek published a 12-page article saying that antidepressants don't work better than placebos. But who was paying attention? Well, not psychiatrists, not doctors, apparently. At least not most of them. So what do we know and what do we do and what do you do if you're on one of these medications? Well, according to the researchers, they said, our view is that patients should not be told that depression is caused by low serotonin or by a chemical imbalance. They should not be led to believe that antidepressants work by targeting these unproven abnormalities, Professor Moncrief said. We do not understand what antidepressants are doing to the brain exactly, and giving people this sort of misinformation prevents them from making an informed decision about whether to take an antidepressant or not. Think about that. We do not know what these drugs do in the human body. That's what Moncrief said, but the truth is we know more than maybe she thinks. But there was an article on technologyworks.com that attempted to throw cold water on this debunking of the theory, and it's hilariously arrogant, this article. It says, the review article published by an international research team, including Professor Joanna Moncrief, aimed to assess the available evidence for and against the serotonin theory of depression. While the original review paper focuses mainly on the serotonin theory, an accompanying article by Moncrief and her co-author Mark Horowitz in the conversation took a different different tack arguing that the evidence against the serotonin hypothesis also disproves the need for SSRIs, full stop. Now, that's when some doctors and a lot of pharma execs get real nervous. What? If that hypothesis is wrong, then our serotonin drugs are no longer needed, the ones we're making $13.5 billion a year on? We conclude... They said in that article, these are the same authors that authored the paper saying that the serotonin hypothesis is bogus. We conclude that it is impossible to say that taking SSRI antidepressants is worthwhile or even completely safe, they write. Now, this conflation, according to technologyworks.com, this conflation has been a particular source of frustration among commenting psychiatrists. And, and psychiatrists, you want to find a shady field? It's the shadiest of fields, in my opinion. But regardless, this is the quote that I want to focus on because it is the most arrogant quote, and this guy needs to be called out. So that's what I'm here to do. Many of us know that taking acetaminophen can be helpful for headaches, and I don't think anyone believes that headaches are caused by not enough acetaminophen in the brain. You know, that's Tylenol, okay? So this is the quote. Many of us know that taking acetaminophen can be helpful for headaches, 
And I don't think anyone believes that headaches are caused by not enough acetaminophen in the brain, writes Bloomfield. His full name, in case you're wondering, is Dr. Michael Bloomfield. Okay. Then he says, there's consistent evidence that antidepressant medicines can be helpful in the treatment of depression and can be life-saving. Now, let's take this brilliant quote and dissect it. First, the acetaminophen portion. Acetaminophen seems to work by blocking chemical messengers in the brain that tell us we have pain. That is not the same as an SSRI. Okay, so let's talk about what's an SSRI. It's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, okay? So an SSRI keeps more serotonin circulating in the brain until apparently after over time it makes less circulate in the brain. But initially, it's supposed to make more serotonin circulate in the brain, all right? That's the first thing. That is not what acetaminophen does. It's not what ibuprofen does. It's not what Tylenol does. They block messengers that create pain. So we're never taking acetaminophen because we have a deficiency in acetaminophen. We're taking acetaminophen because we don't want to feel pain and it blocks that pain messenger. In the case of the serotonin hypothesis, it's completely different. They're saying that depression is caused by serotonin deficiency, so we'll replace the serotonin and that will fix the problem. But if serotonin deficiency has nothing to do with depression, then how can increasing serotonin fix that problem? Because that isn't the problem in the first place. So comparing those two things couldn't be more apples and oranges. Because if the theory was that, yes, we need to have more acetaminophen in the brain to stop pain, then that would be the same thing. But that's not what the researchers are saying. So that part is just, it's arrogant. It's basically him saying, I'm smarter than you, so I'm going to say this because it sounds intelligent, even though it's the stupidest thing that I've spit out of my mouth today. Now, what about the second claim? The claim that serotonin drugs actually work and save lives, according to Bloomfield. Well, Irving Kirsch wrote this in one of his articles that he published, saying antidepressants are supposed to work by fixing a chemical imbalance, specifically a lack of serotonin in the brain. Indeed, their supposed effectiveness is the primary evidence for the chemical imbalance theory. But analysis of the published data and the unpublished data that were hidden by drug companies reveals that most, if not all, of the benefits are due to the placebo effect. Some antidepressants increase serotonin levels, some decrease it, and some have no effect on serotonin at all. Nevertheless, they all show the same therapeutic benefit. Even the small statistical difference between antidepressants and placebos may be an enhanced placebo effect due to the fact that most patients and doctors in the clinical trials successfully break blind, meaning they're not, they know they're taking the actual antidepressant. The serotonin theory is as close as any theory in the history of science to having been proved wrong, he said. That was back in 2014. So the antidepressants don't behave better than placebos. And yet this guy, Michael Bloomfield, he says, well, they save lives. There's plenty of evidence. Well, what does Peter C., and I'm probably going to butcher this guy's name. He's from Copenhagen. But Peter C. Goch, Gochi, I'm going to say, this guy 
has this to say. The FDA admitted in 2007 that SSRIs can cause madness at all ages and that drugs are these drugs are very dangerous. In fact, the FDA puts heavy warnings on these drugs, including families and caregivers of patients should be advised to look for the emergence of such symptoms on a day-to-day basis since changes may be abrupt. All patients being treated with antidepressants for any indication should be monitored appropriately and observed closely for clinical worsening, suicidality, and unusual changes in behavior. He goes on to say that such monitoring is, however, a fake fix because people can't be monitored every minute of every day. As the published trial literature related to suicidality and aggression on antidepressants is unreliable, he looked at 64,381 pages of clinical studies, that's 70 different trials, we got from the European Medicines Agency. We showed for the first time that SSRIs, in comparison with placebo, increase aggression in children and adolescents' odds uh, by 2.7 times. This is an important finding considering the many school shootings where the killers are on SSRIs, he says. In a systematic review of placebo-controlled trials in healthy adult volunteers, we showed that antidepressants double the occurrence of events that the FDA has defined as possible precursors to suicide and violence by about almost double, 1.85 times. Based on the clinical study reports, we showed that adverse effects that increase the risk of suicide and violence were four to five times more common with uh, certain antidepressants than the placebo in trials in middle-aged women with stress, urinary incontinence. Yes, they do prescribe antidepressants for urinary incontinence, and it makes them four to five times more likely to be violent or commit suicide. So, Michael Bloomfield, yes, you have a DR in front of your name, and yes, I'm just a podcast host and an herbalist, but shame on you for trying to pull the wool over eyes after it's been proven time and time again that the serotonin hypothesis is 100% bogus, and shame on you for trying to continue the lie instead of actually helping patients that really need your help. You know what infuriates me about all of this? If I might get on my soapbox for just a moment. Can you think of two more desperate classes of people than those who've been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease that are quite literally losing their minds or people that are severely depressed? That's some heavy level of desperation right there. Those are the people being taken advantage of. Being made millions of dollars, billions of dollars off of, knowing for years that these theories are bogus. And yet, I can tell you right now with almost absolute certainty that even though this is all cats out of the bag, it's all there, it's in the published data, they will continue to prescribe these drugs for years to come, and they will continue to reap the rewards for prescribing them, and they will continue to give people false hope when they could be actually going out and finding real solutions to their problems. This is why we must educate ourselves 
and find our own answers to the problems that we have with our physical health and our mental health. I was going to talk more about depression and some natural things that can be done. I have done that on other episodes of Vitality Radio. I encourage you to check those out. I may do a short episode maybe in a few days to uh, tack on to the end of this one. But I have run out of time for this episode. I must be going now. Thank you so much for listening to me. Almost 15 years doing this show, and it's it, I just absolutely love it. The audience is growing. All of you who are new, I greatly appreciate your support. Your kind words mean so much to me and encourage me to continue to do this show and hopefully do it better and better all the time. And for those of you who support Vitality Nutrition. Thank you for keeping us alive for 45 years. I encourage you to come down and uh, locally if you can or jump online, vitalitynutrition.com, to check out our 45th birthday sale. I'll be there having so much fun, hopefully, with you. Thank you so much for listening to me. My name is Jared St. Clair, and this has been Vitality Radio.